It's Tuesday, November 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As scientists continue to look for the ever-elusive dark matter, experiments designed to look for this currently undetected substance may depend on ancient shipwrecks. More specifically, the lead that has been buried underwater for hundreds of years. While other materials can be used in such experiments, this lead has low levels of radioactivity, which make it ideal for shielding dark matter detectors from rogue radiation. Robin George Andrews, contributor to The Atlantic, joins us for more. Next, transgender athletes are having a moment right now, and at all levels of sport, they're stepping onto the podium, winning medals, and setting records. But as more transgender athletes are winning competitions, opponents are saying that they are ruining sports for cisgendered girls and women. Some ways that have been floated around to address this would be to create multiple divisions or extra categories for athletes to compete in. Christy Ashwanden, contributor to Wired, joins us for more on how trans athletes are shaking up sports. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The lead at the bottom of the sea in ancient shipwrecks has two qualities that make it fantastic for these kind of experiments. One is that it's been down there for thousands of years or hundreds of years at least. So its inherent natural radioactivity has already kind of mostly decayed away. Joining us now is Robin George Andrews, science journalist and contributor to The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about why the search for dark matter depends on ancient shipwrecks and more specifically, the lead that is found in those shipwrecks. But let's start at the beginning and give us a quick primer on what dark matter actually is. So dark matter makes up something like 83% or 85% of all of the stuff in the universe. So it's obviously quite important. But the problem is that it's never been detected, either directly or indirectly. We just kind of infer its existence based on... uh, the way galaxies spin and essentially there's more mass and um, generating more gravity um, out there than we can actually see. There's some sort of like ghostly invisible matter that's keeping things a bit more, uh, you know, stuck together, so to speak. Um, But we we can't actually see it. And there are many, many experiments all over the world trying to detect it directly or indirectly. But so far it's uh, proved to be, you know, very inconveniently elusive. And, and and that's where what leads us to these ancient shipwrecks and the lead there is that they need this lead for these experiments, uh, either to act as a shield and block out other particles. There's a lot that actually goes into that. So tell us why they need uh, this lead and, and why they need to get it from these ancient shipwrecks in the ocean. Right. So um, so uh, there are like all kinds of dark matter detectors and they're getting more complex over time. But for some designs, you need certain things to shield the detector from like errant radiation. So everything, you know, you can think of as some degree of radioactivity, you know, bananas do, people do. The parts of the detector itself are radioactive to some degree, not in a dangerous way, of course, right. but that radiation can fling sort of vagabond particles into this detector and it might cause false positives might trick the physicists into thinking they've made a discovery of dark matter when they haven't. So essentially, they need to block out all this radiation. And in some cases, a giant tank of water is fine or plastic. But for some of the smaller experiments, and for ones where they need to block a gamma ray, copper or especially lead is ideal. And even though lead is mined all over the world, that is generally still fairly 
radioactive, but the lead at the bottom of the sea in ancient shipwrecks has two qualities that make it fantastic for these kind of experiments. One is that it's been down there for thousands of years or hundreds of years at least. So its inherent natural radioactivity has already kind of mostly decayed away. So it's got a very low background radiation. And the second thing is because it's under the sea, cosmic rays from outer space can't hit it and then kind of kickstart its radioactivity again. So these two qualities make it pretty much the perfect radiation shield for these dark matter experiments. It's funny because it just makes it sound like it's a perfectly bland piece of lead. And that's exactly what you need to block everything out and not give any of these false positives. So in that sense, this ancient bland lead is very valuable in that sense. There's an obvious problem in terms of actually obtaining this lead because firstly, it's bottom of the sea. So they are a practical issues with that. And secondly, these sites obviously of enormous archaeological importance. There needs to be a balance struck essentially between the need of archaeologists to understand history and the need of particle physicists to understand the, the universe. That's a difficult position to be in only only because, as you mentioned, you know, these things have historical value. You know, what if we find this ancient shipwreck and all this lead and other materials are branded with something from the Spanish Empire? You know, I'm just throwing out an example here, but that could prove to be very valuable in and of itself. And then you have particle physicists that that kind of want to melt it down and create shields with it. So who gets first call on that? And beyond that, the expense of all this stuff to exhume all this stuff from the ocean, from the bottom of the ocean, I'm assuming can be very pricey. I was given a recent example of just how this stuff kind of gets auctioned off. And it's it's strangely sort of like casual in the way it's, it's not particularly official. There's no like big gathering or anything. Essentially, a shipwreck is found. A company says that they can dredge it up, and then a sample sent to a lab to test if it's of low radioactivity and if it's the genuine article. And then if it is, then, you know, in a recent example, it would be 20 euros per kilogram, which per kilogram might not sound like a lot, but some dark matter detectors need quite a lot of it. So that can add up. And where are they finding a lot of this stuff, a lot of these shipwrecks and a lot of these lead that's down there? What part of the Mm -hmm. world are they mining this from? So there are a couple places really. Parts of Europe around the Mediterranean are are great for this. There are a few shipwrecks off the coast of Sardinia, for example. These all generally come from Roman shipwrecks. There are some, the Greeks also made quite a lot of lead and process it for for things too, but the Romans made a lot more of it. And these like 2,000 year old shipwrecks are where lots of this lead are kind of found. But also off the coast of North America, there are lots of shipwrecks from the days of empires, European empires. And I'm not sure when it was discovered, but there's one off the coast of New Jersey that's about 400 or 500 years old, and it's full of lead. It's still pretty decent for these kind of experiments. So you can kind of find it in these parts of the world. I'm sure there are other places too, but that seems to be the two locations that come up most often. Are there any other suitable alternatives? I've seen something about plastic and steel, Mm. things like that, but there's nothing really that compares to this ancient lead. So steel is a really, really kind of odd one. Steel is also a great shield for particle physics experiments. So there's a lot of it used in Fermilab, which is particle physics lab complex in Illinois. And this steel is great as a shielding as well. It's got slightly different properties from lead. It's very experiment dependent. For Fermilab, it's been great. They didn't have to go to the bottom of the sea to dredge these things up. They used decommissioned warships from the Second World War and the Korea War around that time because... The ships were either made just before the atomic age began or just after. So they weren't particularly contaminated with radiation. So they were great for this. So that kind of bland steel in a way. I cannot get over the idea that essentially 
ships that served in these major conflicts were used to help particle physicists in, in <laughs> right. you know, in the US. It's, it's a really, really trippy thing to think about. Robin George Andrews, science journalist and contributor to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It was great to have you. In more than a dozen states, athletes are allowed to participate in their gender identity. So that means if I say I'm a girl, I'm a girl, that's the standard. And in many cases, it's not just a matter of saying the thing. I mean, the school will sort of make a determination that, in fact, you are living in that identity and, you know, calling yourself that identity and all of this. Joining us now is Christy Ashwanden, columnist at Wired and author of Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Christy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about transgender athletes. Right now, they're having a moment at all levels of sport. They're breaking records. They're getting a lot of medals and winning a lot of different matches. But there's a a flip side to this. There's a lot of people who are saying that this is actually an unfair playing field, specifically with regards to female sports. So in this case would be men who have transitioned to be females, and then they're still winning in a lot of these different sports. Christy, tell us a little bit about what's going on right now. A couple of things. I think the first thing is that we're sort of at a moment in our culture where transgender people are sort of coming into the limelight. This has been in the news. There have been some high-profile legislative things, thinking of the bathroom bills that were in the news for a while, though most of those did not go through. These were bills that would basically restrict people to using the bathroom that matches the gender that was on their birth certificate. But there's also sort of more of an awareness that trans people exist. They've always existed, but they've been sort of given a little bit more. We've had some people like Caitlyn Jenner, who've been very high profile people coming out and they're sort of more in the limelight, I guess I would say. So that's the background sort of on the social side and sort of society level side. But at the same time, we have some transgender athletes who are competing. And it turns out while writing the story, I actually spoke with a woman who worked on the NCAA's transgender handbook. And she told me that under her estimates, there's probably something like 150 to 200 transgender athletes who are participating in NCAA sports right now. But the reason that we don't hear about most of them is that for the most part, they're not controversial, where it really becomes something that you know is making news is when these athletes are winning races and earning medals and things like that. So yeah. that's really sort of where the controversy lies, where you have these transgender athletes who are either breaking records or standing on the podium. And then there are people who are saying, well, that's taking away from a cisgender athlete who would have otherwise been there. And one of the big controversies in Connecticut, there's a conservative Christian group called the Alliance Defense ending freedom. They are suing on behalf of three high school athletes where there was some transgender athletes who basically between two of them won 15 different state championship titles. So on this one, it kind of skewed heavily that way. But this is kind of one of those big controversies that pops up from it. And as you mentioned in the NCAA, there's really not that many transgender athletes, but these are the ones that garner the headlines when something like this happens and when there's lawsuits and things like that. Transgender people are a very small proportion of our population. I mean, we're talking single digits of the overall population. So we're talking about a very small number of people. And traditionally, you know, they've been a very repressed minority. The idea that people are changing genders in order to get an athletic advantage is just sort of ludicrous. If you look at sort of what these people are going through, 
in more than a dozen states, athletes are allowed to participate in their gender identity. So that means if I say I'm a girl, I'm a girl, that's the standard. And in many cases, it's not just a matter of saying the thing. I mean, the school will sort of make a determination that, in fact, you are living in that identity and, you know, calling yourself that identity and all of this. But what's happened in Connecticut is that we have several transgender girls who are doing quite well. This is in track and field. And so there are people that are saying this just isn't fair. You know, one season they're on the boys team, the next season they're on the girls team. And there's a sense that this is an unfair advantage that they're having. And at the high school level here, this is very complex stuff, but there are no rules in these cases of saying, you know, that you have to have some sort of hormonal therapy or something like this. Mm -hmm. So the concern, I think, is that you have someone who basically physically has not changed at all, but the identity has changed. And there's a sense among some people that this is grossly unfair. And what about that argument, though, uh, the testosterone and the physical advantages that some of these transgender athletes might have? And we're talking about specifically right now in the female sports category. There are certain things that do give them a physical advantage. And what about those people say that that's unfair? It's pretty clear that the reason that we have female categories for sports is that overall, in general, males outperform females. Now, this isn't true across the board. The best women can outperform most men. But if you were looking at, say, world records, about 10% is the difference that you see across sports. Now, it varies a little bit. In ultra and distance events, the performances are a little bit closer. So it's not always the case. But in general, there is this gap. And so, for instance, in high school sports, it's very regular. There are at least hundreds of high school boys who break the women's world record in track and field events every year. So this difference is pretty large at that level. And so the concern here is that a lot of this stuff comes from testosterone, although it's not entirely testosterone. But overall, men tend to have bigger bone structure, greater lung capacity, larger hearts. So they have various physical advantages. And some of these don't go away when someone transitions to become female, whether they're doing hormone therapy or other things, some of these advantages are going to remain. So what are the things that they're trying to work on to either help with this level the playing field, however you want to put it? I mean, there's a lot of different options, not all of them seem the best. I think one of them, instead of having two divisions, a male and a female, there could be multiple divisions and athletes can be placed in that. But some transgender athletes wouldn't want to be put in one of these other categories. They want to compete in these main categories. I think the goal here for many of us is to balance inclusiveness and to be inclusive, particularly to this group of transgender athletes who just want to participate like anyone else. And sport can be such a healthy thing for them to do, for any person, frankly, to do. But you want to balance that with fairness. And it's a tricky thing to do. I don't think that there are easy answers here at all. One of the things that's been proposed, which I think is an interesting idea, is to use some sort of algorithm and sort of have a grading sort of... This is done in Paralympics. So you have people competing with various, um, you know, missing an arm or leg or having various things like this. And they, they use these formulas to sort of just determine who's competing against two. And so this may be viable on paper. In practicality, though, I think it would be really difficult to pull off. There'd be a lot of very tough decisions. But the other problem is, you know, at the end of the day, we want to be able to do this in a way that is not increasing stigma towards transgender people. 
Transgender people, particularly young people, have very high rates of depression, suicide, things like this. And one of the issues is that so much of what they're going through is feeling not at home in their bodies. And sport is something that can help them feel at ease and at home in their bodies and taking part in a sport where they're on a team, where they belong. I mean, so many of these transgender athletes are really competing on teams where they're being welcomed, they're not being stigmatized, and it gives them an opportunity to feel like they belong. And so I think that we shouldn't discount the things that sport can do for transgender athletes. What kind of rules do we have on the books now? The NCAA has a few rules. The International Olympic Committee also has a few rules. I know maybe on the high school level, it might be a little different, but at least there are some type of parameters set so far for transgender athletes. For male to female transgender athletes in the NCAA, they have to have been doing testosterone suppression therapy for at least a year, but there aren't any rules on what those limits of testosterone can be. Now, in the IOC, at the current time, the rule is 10 nanomoles per liter for a minimum of 12 months, so that's the upper limit that a transgender person can have and compete in the female category. There's been a push to actually lower that to 5 nanomoles, so cisgender men typically have something between like 7 to 30 animals per liter. So wide range there, whereas cis women generally top out at just below two, although there's some variability there too. But this gets to a really important issue, and that is that there's a lot of variability. And one of the reasons that we like sport and one of the things that sport gives us is a chance to celebrate human excellence. And there are women who are outstanding performers. There are women who have naturally high testosterone levels. There are women who are naturally quite strong. And so at some point, we're sort of almost defining the upper limit of how outstanding or how athletically gifted a woman can be. And I think that's where things get really tricky. There was a recent story in the news not too long ago where it was a track and field runner and the woman had high testosterone levels and they were going back and forth whether they were even going to allow her to compete. You spoke to Joanna Harper. She's a transgender distance runner and researcher who served on the IOC committee that developed the current rules right now. And and the way she put it was it boils down to who you're trying to be fair to. Typical women who can't compete with men at high levels of sport or these minority transgender people who just kind of want to enjoy the same things that everybody else does. And it is such a difficult situation to kind of navigate. Those two objectives are sort of, you know, in competition with one another. I don't see a satisfying answer that will sort of achieve both of those things in a satisfying way. I mean, on the one hand, there are a lot of levels at which, you know, most sport is not done at the elite level. And I think there are many, many opportunities and avenues and sort of venues where trans athletes might participate without people feeling like it's somehow threatening the sport. And Joanna Harper sort of made the point that she felt like for recreational athletes, this shouldn't really be a big problem or something that people are concerned about too much. But at the same time, she told me that she was uncomfortable with, say, high school transgender runners taking those podium spots at, say, the state meet, winning over athletic scholarships and things like that. But where do you decide to draw those lines? And if you say, well, we're going to say that transgender athletes can compete as long as it's not too serious. But once they start winning, then, you know, we want them to step aside side, well, that doesn't seem very inclusive either. And it seems sort of stigmatizing. You know, on the other hand, if you are the cisgender person who feels like that transgender athlete has an inherent advantage over you, you might not like that. And frankly, I don't know what the answer is. Personally, I believe that transgender athletes should be allowed to compete in some way, but I'm very open to these issues of fairness too. And I I don't see easy solutions. Yeah, it's definitely going to be an ongoing conversation as this continues to develop and even as lawsuits like this arise. 
Christy Ashwanden, columnist at Wired and author of Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.